Yeah, we don't want to do anything to scare your children. That's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to scare anybody. everyone welcome back to leftover uh this is arjun here with nikita oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as you can see we've clearly uh you know smoothed things out uh compared to the first week back here with the original twosome um to discuss something that you know has i think fallen a little bit out of the news cycle in the last couple of weeks but i think is nonetheless um worthy of interrogation and uh, the right amount of piss taking, uh, which is, of course, the the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities report, also known as the Sewell report, uh, also known as the race report or the <laughs> racism doesn't exist report, which came out uh, at the beginning uh, of April, I believe. Uh, no, it came out uh, towards the end of March. Um, exactly. Like right at the end of March. Exactly. I think it was published, um, I believe, on the 31st. Um, and yeah it's done done the rounds hasn't it and it's uh, received a fair bit of uh fair bit of criticism from all sides already the only um if you google it um the only sort of positive thing anything anyone has had to say about it was um Sewell himself <laughs> he's, he's well of course really, but google is the social justice left you know like the silicon valley is is run by the social justice woke left and so, of course, Google's results algorithmically will tell you that this report was wrong, you know, because that's so what they would have you have you believe. But um, yeah, I mean, like, what was your what was your sort of initial response when you saw it? I so I didn't actually I'd only seen my excerpts and stuff of it before um, I sat down and read it this week or last yeah. week. Um, I didn't. I I just didn't think it would be as bad as it was. Like, like I saw people <laughs> complaining about it, and I was just like, "That's kind of what people do, you know." Like, if something comes out and it's like badly researched, or um, it comes to some like shitty conclusions, like we will criticize it as aggressively as we can because it's wrong and we need to fight against it. But then <laughs> I read it. And <laughs> I could not have possibly have been prepared for how bad it was. It's, it's so bad. It's incredible. Honestly, it feels a little bit like, and I think this is what I told you earlier as well, and I think this is an experience that probably speaks to the ma- majority of um, POCs in this country, um, that any conversation they've had with like a 50-plus-year-old in a pub about racism, this is that report. This report, rather, is that conversation in the form of a government report with uh, an institutional stamp of approval. Every single point that it makes in there, you can basically trace back to one of those arguments that you've heard a thousand times before. And it's just bog standard conservative arguments about why racism isn't really a thing, why institutional racism isn't really a thing, why uppity minorities need to know their place and, you know, need to stop complaining because things are now better than they were before. You know, it's essentially an argument that you can like make at 
any relative point in history, right? You know, like things yeah, are better exactly. now than you've they never were had before. it so good. <laughs> exactly. You know, so why are we complaining? And now? that's that's how progress works, but exactly. it doesn't mean we're there yet. <laughs> like exactly. in the 80s, they were saying that in the 80s, there was another report, the Scarman report, that also yeah. said that there was no institutional racism in this country. And we know there was in the 80s. We know I there mean, was up until, you know, the, the, a lot, um, the Scarman We've report had... has happened as a result of the Brixton riots, <laughs> which yeah. happened because of <laughs> Operation Swamp, which is the Metropolitan Police going into Brixton and just stop and searching every single young black man that they could find, or boy even, you know, teenagers. And um, that eventually led to a police officer getting hurt. Um, and then there were major, major riots. And then, you know, the Stephen Lawrence case happened and, uh, the McPherson report came out after that. And I mean, report after report. I think McPherson report was, um, yeah, 1999. Yeah. Uh, and that found the police institutionally racist. So. I mean, the thing is, like, study after study after study has shown that, you know, ethnic minorities in the, in this country are disadvantaged and at different levels as well. And this is something that we'll come back to. Uh, but, um, you know, um, ethnic minorities in this country are disadvantaged at like almost every single aspect of life, at every single point of life. Um, and this is especially true for, for, for black people in this country more than pretty much any other, uh, minority ethnic group. And, the reason this report was commissioned, obviously, is because of the BLM protest last summer and because of the general conversation around race, which has transpired um, in the wake of the 2019 general election and the election of an overt racist in the form of Boris Johnson into number 10 and and the sort of very explicitly overt racist um, policies enacted by, by by his home office, you know, for example. I mean, this is not exactly new. This is stuff that the home office has been doing for the last 20 years. But um, there seems to be a certain kind of a, a mask off moment, you know, at some point yeah. in the last year, hasn't there? You know, I mean, there's there's really no couching any of this brutality and cruelty in in any, any other language anymore. You know, the Home Office is literally putting out posters saying, you know, we've ended freedom of movement. This is what you voted for. This is a success. You know, it is putting out direct attacks on human rights lawyers who are trying to stop deportations. Um, and um, so it, it really feels like there has been a, a, an overt shift and a rhetorical shift. And, and Yeah, and um, there's, there's no longer an opposition to it either. Exactly. I have just looked it up. Um Apparently, he's disappointed in it. <laughs> well done. <laughs> has, he, has he kneeled? Has he said he takes no truck with it? <laughs> oh, my God. This fucking guy. Yeah, by the time this episode is out, Labour will probably have lost Hartlepool. And maybe <laughs> as a result of that, Starmer will be on his way out. Who knows? Uh, oh, that's what I predicted. I predicted, I predicted right. that after May 6th, Starmer is gone. So let's see. Oh, you know, when when we release it, um, the the results might not even be out yet. Anyway, they're just going to push right, um, kind of regardless of what happens over these elections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you saw that. Uh, I mean, if you've ever heard Paul Williams, aka Saudi Paul, speak, uh, this guy is terrible. He is terrible. I mean, like, just an awful communicator. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, if you're gonna parachute in a an NEC candidate. <laughs> At least make sure that, like, he's good at what he does. I don't know. Like... I mean, to his credit, he used to be an MP, but I think he was an MP for about two years. So. 
I mean, it's amazing, um, you know, how this entire political system is kind of set up for shitheads like him and others to kind of fall upwards. And that's kind of related, actually, to what we're talking about, you know, because when, when talking about something like institutional racism, right, this report constantly makes a straw man out of what institutional racism actually is and what yeah. systemic racism actually is. And it constantly kind of creates this idea that institutional racism is the idea of a shadowy group of white men sitting together and deciding, ooh, we're going to be really racist together. Let's do this. <laughs> Not that that doesn't happen. I mean, <laughs> that has that shit has happened in the past and still does happen. But that's not really, that's not really what we mean by institutional racism. I mean, institutional racism is about how entire systems and entire structures are built with pre-existing power structures built into them uh, and pre-existing systems of knowledge and biases that are built into them. And so... When I say, you know, like it's built for people like this to fall upwards in life. I mean, when you look at the British political system, for example, the British media, and you'd see the kinds of people who hold positions of influence and power there, and you see where they come from, you know, I mean, it's it's not really a surprise. Um, you know, when when you see the uh, when you when you take a look at that picture of all those lords, I think there was like a hundred and something lords. And this was a a, a, um, a piece that came out in, I think, the Times of the Telegraph a few weeks ago of, of all these lords who are lords just purely through um, through birth, you know, because... Oh, yeah, of, peers, yeah. I mean, it's that wall of gammons, except they have a lot more money. Like, But it's the same thing, basically. And, you know, when, when you have such old and entrenched you know, generational wealth and generational power, you know, that's that's inextricable from the systems of, from the arms of government and from the arms of, um, you know, from, from criminal justice, policing, all of these kinds of things, then obviously, you know, you're going to have the kind of outcomes that you have, you know? So, so for example, there's, there's multiple points where, you know, they say that, for example, uh, you know, differences in educational outcome can be uh, you know, d- d- um, oftentimes put down to geographical. Yeah, they use that one a lot. Exactly. You know, to, to, to you know, geographical, y- your location, basically, you know, you know where you live. But like, I mean, that kind of stuff doesn't happen by accident either. Yes. <laughs> yes. Know? I was literally thinking of this. So like, I'm I'm African Indian, right? Mm-hmm. When I, when people try to, you know, I talk about where I'm from or whatever, people will know it's either Brent or Leicester, and I grew up in both because <laughs> immigrant communities set, set up around each other. And exactly. like, you know, you know these like dominant communities. Like, you know, you know what community we're talking about if we talk about ethnic minorities in Bradford, or if we yeah. talk about ethnic minorities in Southall. Yeah. You know, like people flock with one another, and that's how that's how immigration works. Yeah, I mean, you've got an explicitly hostile immigration system. You know, which, you know, is built on othering people that are trying to come over, you know, for whatever reason. Um, not nearly enough, you know, systems in place to actually uh, facilitate, you know, new arrivals in the country and, and you know, for, for their needs. Um, and so oftentimes the only option that people will have, you know, is within their own communities. Uh, I mean, they'll yeah. possibly know someone or know someone who knows someone, you know, from their village. Um, you know, for example, I mean, you know, look at Brick Lane, you know, which is like pretty much all the Sileti community. I mean, Silet is like one region of Bangladesh. You know, it's not even all of Bangladesh. I mean, it's it's one region in, in, in the mountains in, in Bangladesh. Um, 
And there's a reason why, you know, celebrity people would, would move to somewhere like Brick Lane, you know, um, it's because, you know, they, they would possibly have a cousin or, you know, like someone who knows someone, you know, who, who is there and who might be able to get them work or something like that. And, uh, and so obviously as a result of this, communities do tend to around these neighborhoods and around certain, yeah. uh, you know, localities. And a lot of this is down to a, a rejection that they face from wider society as well. Yeah, so <laughs> my, my grandparents came over to Leicester and worked in garment factories because those are the only people who would employ them. When I first moved here in 1998, when I got told, you fucking pack, you go back to your country by some eight-year-old kid in my school. And like, my parents weren't particularly part of like any sort of South Asian community or anything like that over here. And and I was very lucky to kind of have that, have an out from that, you know, but like that kind of racism that's faced by, you know, people who have just arrived um, and this is in the late 90s that we're talking about, you know, go back 10 years before that, 20 years before that. And it's it, it was even more explicit, let's say. So, yeah, it's not really a surprise in that case that, you know, th- that these kind of almost like ghettos of migrants formed. And like, you know, the way with allocation of social housing and stuff like go to, you know, go to Bermondsey, that's deliberate. Um, yeah. And then it just gets shifted from that, even though the racism informs the geography and I've got another list of things they said. So they've said, um, the evidence shows that geography, family influence, socioeconomic background, culture and religion have more significant impact on life chances than the existence of racism. That said, we take the reality of racism seriously and we do not deny that it is a real force in the UK. But the thing is, so they use all of these things to offload, you know, the the blame of racism onto things, but they're also acknowledging that ethnic minority people are suffering because of these things, even though, you know, like, race is a factor that informs social mobility, right? Like, religion is racialized. The way your family's structure is racialized. Like, this is... These things cannot be separated from race. Yeah, and um, there's this constant emphasis, you know, in this report of, you know, how things have gotten better, right? You know, and and how things are actually all right now and you know things were bad in the past maybe and uh you know things things are obviously a lot better now and there was a quote that was doing the rounds on twitter uh you know when when the report first came uh first came out which was the cause of like a fair amount of uh head scratching um which is that it is certainly true that the concept of racism has become much more fluid extending from overt hostility and exclusion to unconscious bias and microaggressions this is partly because ethnic minorities have higher expectations of equal treatment <laughs> and, and, and rightly will not tolerate behavior that only a couple of generations ago would likely have been quietly endured or shrugged off. The fact that this generation expects more is a positive aspect of integration. <laughs> Firstly, And secondly, ho- however, there is also an increasing, st- increasingly strident form of anti-racism that thing, um, anti-racism thinking that seeks to explain all minority disadvantage through the prism of white discrimination. This diverts attention from other reasons for minority success and failure, including those embedded in the cultures and attitudes of those minority communities themselves. Which is mm. quite an mm. incredible statement to make in a in a uh, in a report about how there's no institutional racism. I mean, I guess if they want to take it by those uh, metrics... The thing is that there are no even, you know, defined metrics that they're measuring anything by. No, um, there isn't. <laughs> that's the thing, you know, there's just a lot of cherry picking of data and, and and something that's consistently done, the differentiation of 
the experiences of different minority ethnic groups and the fact that, you know, kids from Indian and Chinese families tend to do well in school is constantly held up, you know, tend to like have a higher household uh, income, perhaps, you know, like it's constantly, constantly held up. And I mean, this is is a very age-old trick by racists, you know, like, you know, the, the race science people will always say, oh, but, you know, Jewish people have the highest IQ, you know, we're not actually racist, you yeah. know, like, <laughs> but, like, uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, the bottom line is that, like, and, and this kind of feeds into their rejection of the term BAME as well, uh, yeah. you know, which is, um, which is kind of re- iterated quite a few times. Obviously, there's been quite a bit of discussion around BAME, and I don't know how sort of... I don't know if we're necessarily the most qualified to like talk about it in that sense. And like, I know, I know that there's been, you know, quite a lot of opposition to the term as well. And I do understand, you know, where a lot of that comes from. Uh, But at the same time, I think like the fact that this report so overtly rejects it uh, and so like does it, does it so strongly um, speaks to like a certain kind of issue that I had with that approach in the first place which is you know i think that when it comes to anti-racist solidarity and anti-racist action um you know the the common experiences between different uh, minority ethnic groups should be the basis for actions of solidarity and and movements of solidarity and constantly emphasizing the differences in outcome and don't get me wrong it is important to look at those differences as well absolutely and it's important to look at like anti-black racism within the south asian community for example as well i mean no one's saying like these things very much exist and they are very problematic and need to be interrogated no one's saying that but the bottom line is that i think that the the commonalities in experience and the shared experience um in my opinion, at least, ought to be the grounds for, you know, solidarity and and, and coalition building rather than, you know, um, kind of saying, oh, we don't actually really have anything in common. And and so why should we fight for one another's rights? Yes. I mean, I'm broadly on the side that maybe the term BME has sort of, it's outlived its political necessity. But what a massive issue I have with this whole report is, so it says that, but then it'll exploit the the grouping so one of these quotes is the gravitational force of dominant narratives tends to point to our attention in negative directions such as racist abuse on social media and away from positive ones the fact for example that 90 that 40 percent of nhs consultants are from ethnic minorities okay mm. so they're you know they're saying ethnic minorities here yeah. they're going against their own you know like findings and their own ideas but then, like, so it gives you a link in the report about, you know, this racial breakdown. <laughs> and um, so, you know, so it's 40% are ethnic minorities. I'm not, and I'm not, when I say this, I'm not saying it's of the 40%, I'm saying overall, 29% of, of NHS consultants are Asian, 2.9% are black. So yeah. it's exploiting something that it's it's supposedly fighting against in order to make a point. And, you know, another stat I found here, there are 28 black people in very senior managerial roles in the NHS compared to 1,922. Maybe let's not use the NHS as an example of racial parity in this country. Yeah, I mean, um, to say that the use of statistics is cynical would be to 
put it mildly. My um, God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, for example, like there's all these statistics about like school achievement and stuff as well. Uh, but then, you know, like juxtaposed with tables about you know, the parents' education as well. And then, you know, when you count for that, it basically becomes negligible. Uh, yeah. the differences in the differences in achievement but yeah the problem is obviously you know when it comes to you know questions of you know why there is this disparity in intergenerational um you know educational achievement maybe you know but far bigger complex reasons for that you know it's not just a question of oh because these people are from certain cultures they don't have these cultures don't value education you know which is what yeah which is the argument that a lot of people would seem to make you know that like oh asian cultures you know they value education you know um like they they, they you know love to they, they love to hold up model minorities right um, yeah well they're and, even playing divide and conquer amongst the black community with the education stuff because they're like yeah. well you know new african communities do exactly. well and caribbean ones exactly. don't so there's no such thing as anti-black racism <laughs> mm-hmm there is quite quite an amazing quote in that um, education part as well. Let me see if I can find it. It is very difficult to judge on a national level the extent to which racism could be a determining factor in educational outcomes among ethnic minority groups. However, the fact that ethnic groups within the same system can have quite divergent educational outcomes and that even within the uh, major ethnic groups there are quite distinct trends suggests that other factors may be more influential. Indeed, if there is racial bias within schools or the teaching profession, it has limited effect and other factors such as family structure, cultural aspirations and geography may offset this disadvantage. They love geography. (laughs) Um, Uh. uh, Another reason, you know, which comes up quite quite often in terms of uh, what what describes racial disparity in this country, um, a classic... You know, a well-loved uh, classic by racists of... Um, I was going to say racists of all colours. <laughs> maybe not. Uh, <laughs> racists of all stripes, maybe. Um, uh, absent fathers in the black community. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, my is. fucking God. It shouldn't really be that much of a surprise, given that Tony Sewell, the chief commissioner of this report, uh, wrote a piece in The Guardian several years ago, I think in 2009, called Black Boys Are Too Feminized by Tony Sewell. (laughs) Um, And uh, yeah, and he says, more than racism, the absence of father figures is the main problem holding back black kids in school. Yeah, I mean, I've seen this, uh, this, (sighs) this, this TV interview, like where he's on a panel um, uh, after some, some kid got stabbed in South London. Uh, this was a few years ago, and he was invited on the, on the on the panel along with someone else to talk about, yeah, how absent black fathers is the real problem here. Yeah, I mean, the evidence for me saying this hasn't just come from nowhere. I mean, in my kind of role in, in the Youth Justice Board, I, I don't know why people haven't done this before. Just talk to some of those young men involved in 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 those those issues and. Uh, I mean, I was really honest with them when I went round there. Obviously, it wasn't uh, exhaustive research, but it was enough to tell me that that, that this was a case. That the, the the father not being there, or the crisis when the father um, 
hasn't been there at all and trying to find that father became a kind of um, burden on them and actually in a sense really was the the key issue was that's been unresolved mm -hmm. the other thing is just just talking about this now i can't remember a tv program or anything that's really discussed this we have ducked this issue and we've ducked this issue because of a couple of things we politically don't want to go there and one of the reasons why we don't want to go there is this, this the sort of the sacredness of the single mother and it's an almost a sense that what we're doing is we're trying to beat up the single mum if we ever if, if we ever reach there and I actually think that what those boys are saying is that look okay. if I don't have at home somebody to police me somebody to restrain okay. that strong arm and the mums are not doing that enough okay. okay then we have an issue you kind of want to laugh because of how ridiculous it is, but it's such a disgusting and age-old yeah. trope. And it's like, it's, it's been it's used like, in the worst, by like the worst people. And the, the, the most egregious part of this um, is like when you look at the criminal justice system, um, like Britain puts more black people away pr proportionally to the number of black people living here uh, than, than even the US. And, and then they're, you know, going to complain about like black fathers not being there for their kids, you know, when yeah. they're being locked up. Yeah. Like at random by, by the police. I mean, like it's, I mean, and, and like, that's obviously like one, one major explanation for it. it like it, it's one of those tropes that has such far reaching and such damaging consequences you know um, yeah. And it's been, you know, sort of intellectualized as well. Like yeah. it's not just frothing at them. Well, well, they are, they are some racists, they're just not frothing at the mouth racists who are putting this forward as well. Um, this is it. Like, just, I mean, it just doesn't seem to be going away as well. Like every single one of these arguments, like I said at the beginning, you know, boils down to something that I've heard from some like, from some dude in a Weatherspoons, you know, who's ordering his fucking fifth pint at like three in the afternoon. <laughs> and who's going on about foreigners and about how, you know, but he's not racist because he has a black friend called Dave and like, you know, and, and the real problem, and Dave will agree with him on this, the real problem is the fact that there's not enough black people, black fathers, and you know, raising their kids. And like, these, these are all fucking arguments that you've heard hundreds of times. But once again, like I said, it's been given a seal of institutional approval here. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah sort of faux intellectualized the thing is like when you when you even like it's not even particularly sophisticated language like that it's written in like it's just <laughs> it's just kind of like put it down to i mean it's really it is that fucking that that winnie the pooh in a in a tux meme you know <laughs> it's just them like loving the smell of their own farts like when they write these like bullshit disprovable racist arguments down as some sort of sophisticated intellectual. I mean, it's basically the shit that like that the spectator does, you know, that spiked online yep. does, yeah, uh, that unheard does, you know, like all the time. And it's not really surprising in that case as well <laughs> that it would oh, come out to, to contextualize this as well. The commissioners of this piece, there's like quite a few of them, and they are all but one of them are like black or brown. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, this is this this was quite. Uh, quite interesting as well especially because when the the piece first came out when those excerpts started uh circulating and a lot of people were commenting on twitter saying oh this must have been written by white people this must have been written by white people uh -oh. and like <laughs> i mean i get it like i i get why they might think that but 
It, I mean, to me, it was so obvious that it wasn't like. Yeah, <laughs> and the thing I is- think a lot of people are unwilling to believe that we can either be. It's in the same way that a lot of the left believe that you know ethnic minorities are natural allies to the left, which isn't true necessarily. A lot of people can't believe this stuff will come out of this. When I think, especially if you, if you grew up in like a dickhead community like I did, a lot of us are massive cunts and also grifters. And we will, <laughs> we will do this. We will give this a nice veneer. <laughs> I mean, social conservatism within ethnic minority communities is a thing. And like, we can't yeah. deny that. And like, this has obviously always been a thing. And, um, Labour has somehow like courted their vote by, by, even then somehow coming across, at least trying to come across as a bit less racist than the Tories. But in the last, like, yeah, they haven't even tried to do that. They still, they have actually lost the, a large amount of ethnic minority votes from that, but by, huge by, by the polling. Like, yeah. Huge amount. Like, I mean, I think Starmer's on minus two with ethnic minorities. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fucking shocking. And I mean, this has been the case since the end of the year. Uh, I mean, the way he handled BLM was fucking shocking. And he's fucked up the other side too because you know, he did like, the photo op really... with the kneeling. <laughs> you you can't really uh, be surprised at that either, you know. But like, so the the fact that this was written by you know by minorities themselves, uh, all but one. Uh, who who was that guy again? This was a, a school commissioner guy. And, right? and in my um, head, he just looks like Nick Timothy. So. Yeah, but Nick Timothy's bold. This guy isn't. Um, Is he not? In my head, no, he's bold. No, 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 no. Oh, maybe, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, he's spiritual, spiritually probably very bold. No, his name is uh, Martin Oliver. Yeah, yeah, he's the director of a multi-academy trust, uh, and one of those, uh, one of the schools expelled forty-one percent of its students. And, yeah, uh, I'm very, very, very confused about punishment. why he was the token white guy. Yeah, <laughs> they got in some like Victorian uh, disciplinarian <laughs> who believes in corporal punishment, possibly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> allegedly um, allegedly yeah exactly um we're the ones yeah. doing the alleging but um yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's so confusing and like we we've talked about this in the abolition piece where there's there are certain pathways into like you know prison and criminality and being excluded from school is one of those and if they want to you know a huge amount of black lives matter which prompted this report as you know saying that you know black people are being incarcerated at way way higher rates uh what gives what are you doing and then they put this guy in and i really don't understand it honestly and like one of the things that's constantly brought up when it comes to schools uh as as like a recommendation and as a success story is the academization of schools obviously it is And the increased independence that that gives you. I mean, you know how a lot of academies run, right? Like, they literally will just fucking expel all their worst performing students. Yeah, and he, he and does be um, like, isolation yeah, punishments, this Martin guy. That's, yeah, that's what that guy would do, you know? Like, yeah. and this is what, like, huge amounts of, like, academies up and down the country have done. Uh, because it's purely a numbers game, you know? And then they can hold up those numbers and say, oh, look, our grade point averages are up. You know, our our um, achievement is 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 higher up. Like not giving a shit about any of those people that have fallen through the cracks as a result of this. Yeah. And um and and obviously, the other thing that's that's brought up when it comes to education um and the fact that 
a lot of kids not not getting uh, jobs after graduating from university is that they need better careers advice. <laughs> uh, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh. it's, not, <laughs> it's not that there's a, a, a you know like a failing economy or anything like that. You know, it's not like there's a fucking pandemic. <laughs> that's been going no, because that would involve them having to be critical of the government <laughs> that commissioned the report. So. <laughs> yeah and and of course more vocational training and and apprenticeships they fucking love apprenticeships i mean it's the <laughs> like they just want they just want underpaid labor that's literally all it is they just want people to just be grateful that they have a job so that they can pay them like i don't know fucking four pounds an hour or something it's just the most disgusting cynical shit and oh, yeah that's, like yeah that's that's the thing as well that like, you know they talk about if you want to create, you, you talk about, you know, social class being an inhibitor to people of colour or, you know, BME or whatever we want to call it. And then instead of trying to interrogate that and then trying to actually make things better, they go, oh, here's this thing that, you know, apprenticeships or whatever else they're <laughs> suggesting that massively inhibits social mobility. Let's have this. You Forget know what we need we said more? Five Unpaid ago. internships. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really going to help people, you know, move up the social ladder. Tony Sewell comes from a teaching background himself as well. And I think more than one person, not, not just this Martin Oliver guy, but there's also this other person called... Uh, Oh, that really online Noreen, lady. Yeah, Noreen Khalid, uh, who's also the head of another multi-academy trust and co-founder of At UK Gov Chat, which is a place where school governors <laughs> can share tips, possibly about how many kids they need to expel in order to get their <laughs> numbers up. <laughs> can you put more than one child in the isolation Oh booth? my God. Like, Can you imagine what the state of that chat would be like? Like, I bet they're all sexting. Sorry? No, no, nothing. <laughs> oh, <dear>. <laughs> <laughs> all sorts of like Ashley Madison shit going on. Yeah. UK, Gov- <laughs> UK Gov Chat. UK Virtual Gov Chat people. turns out to be a massive fucking front for like a swingers community. <laughs> <laughs> UK Gov Scat. <laughs> oh, God. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> but um, allegedly, no. This is probably not true. You know, just want to put this probably out there. Probably not true. Probably not true. You probably know. not something we just made up on the fly. <laughs> uh, yeah, but speaking of some of the other people um, on this uh, on this board of commissioners, uh, there's Maggie Aldrin Pocock, a pop space scientist who once worked for the Ministry of Defence. She co-hosted The Sky at Night <laughs> and a show called Do We Really Need the Moon? <laughs> she raises a valid point. I've got to watch the show and find out if we need the moon. <laughs> it's, it's important. I mean, I think some people would be quite quite mad that we're even asking the question, to be honest. I think, you know... Um, Obviously we is... don't. Do you remember when those people hexed the moon? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think they'd I be quite upset works. with us. <laughs> I think they might hex us if they found out, if we're, if we're asking these questions. I think they've hexed this report into existence. I think that's what's happened. <laughs> and they're just like, fuck you guys. Oh, my God. Oh, one of my favourite guys uh, on the on the panel, Aftab Chugtai, <laughs> Birmingham <laughs> business owner of Babywear store, Aftab's and Adam Rock, and co-founder of 
Muslims for Britain, which was a pro-Brexit <laughs> campaign group, you know, held up as a as a paragon of model minorities by the one and only Daniel Hannan in conservativehome.org. <laughs> um, Keith Fraser, you know, police officer for 30 years. Why cop is Keith, Keith such a cop name as well? Yes. Right? Like, you've got like... Keith Fraser, Keith Palmer, Keith Starmer, you know, they're all fucking Keith and they're all cops. And Dr. Dambisa Moyo, economist and board member of Chevron Corporation and 3M Company, uh, who was formerly of the World Bank uh, and, and Goldman Sachs. And formerly uh, at Condé Nast. <laughs> if, you, if you Google her, like a, a Guardian interview comes up and it's like... Um, it's not sponsored, is it? It was like... Oh, oh yeah, no, it was the Bill and Melinda the Gates. The Bill and Melinda oh! Gates Foundation. Bill and Melinda Gates, no yeah. more, apparently. Oh, yeah. Who's going to the, the get the foundation? <laughs> <laughs> I think we should team up. We should go after one of them each. <laughs> sort out the... Uh, just Yeah, we should, we, should, we should look for some Gates funding for the podcast. Fully sell out. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Then start talking about how you know we actually do need. Uh, what does what does Bill Gates talk about? What does he What does he advocate for? Malaria. <laughs> for malaria. <laughs> yeah. The pro malaria lobby. <laughs> We're pro mosquitoes around here. Um, yeah, and uh, and of course there's um, there's Samir Shah who writes for the Spectator, who was formerly at the BBC, uh, and Mercy Moroki. Uh, columnist for The Sun, now one of the latest um, signings of of GB News. So I don't I don't understand like her her deal. She's just like some girl who's doing a masters. I and she's like literally. There's such a shortage of young, attractive black conservatives, or even people <laughs> willing to like grift as that. You know. That, they'll like, take anyone, won't they? They'll fucking take anyone. Like, they'll literally fucking take anyone. You know, like, there's a reason why... And I think, like, Ayan Hirsi Ali, like, really, really, like, set the fucking trend for this. And genuinely, like, she really did. She girl it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, you know, g- glass ceiling and shit, you know, like, uh, pioneer. Uh, and then, uh, you know, you've got people like your... Um, um, it's uh, Dom- Ali. D- Yeah, yeah, Dominique Samuels, Nimco Ali... Uh, What's that one? Candice, Candice Owens. Um, oh, oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but just like, I mean, just just unbelievably fucking stupid. And like, you know, like either holding up their blackness or their uh, like refugee status or something like that, like as this trump card to say the most bigoted, like absurd shit. Um, like Mercy Moroki constantly likes to talk about how she grew up in Kenya, like and went to a toilet, which went went to a toilet, went to a school, <laughs> with, <laughs> went to a school with, with a pit latrine for a toilet, you know, like and just like this comes up in every single thing that you see. Like I mean, it's like it's yeah, almost, and she was like, she was five, like, bear in mind when she left, <laughs> and now she's come to the land of opportunities, you know. Like I mean, it's it's this it kind of. Um, creates this uh this this yeah this narrative that essentially like we should be grateful for this country you know and we should kind of stop complaining if it weren't for these rights we wouldn't even be allowed to complain in other countries (laughs) yeah you should enjoy your rights to complain by shutting up you know uh like that's that's oftentimes the uh 
that's oftentimes the argument that's given. Uh, yeah, right. always my favorite would like when everyone criticized Churchill. Like uh-huh. you can't criticize him because you di- he he died. No, he didn't die. If you're right, he, he, he probably died of right something. But he died. Him, so you can't criticize him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, just just quite incredible stuff. And um, if you want to take a guess at what this commission, what this report actually says, as you know, what the paragon of um, oh. <laughs> of, ex- of inclusivity in this country is. <laughs> yeah, gonna, yeah, you guessed yeah. right. Of course, of course. <laughs> what else could it be other than the London 2012 Olympic <laughs> ceremony? Uh, the report oh, fucking there's, starts. There's one bit of this quote that just made me like scream and laugh oh when my I God. saw it. The report just starts and like, so like the, the first section of the report is what lies behind disparity and the first section of that is open Britain. This report <laughs> is not just a report card on how badly or well the UK has served its ethnic minorities. It is underpinned by an ideal for a modern UK best encapsulated by everything we saw in the opening ceremony of the London 2012 Olympics. We saw an array of people and cultures from the sleepy English countryside to the frantic music of the inner city. Oh, my God. (laughs) Frenetic. (laughs) Oh, my God. Uh, It it not only featured British icons like James Bond and the monarchy, but there was also a joyful expression of the contribution made by the Windrush generation, as well as the working class contribution to the country's history and industrial might. So I love how, like, both the Windrush generation and the working class are seen as, you know, not... British uh, in this. Oh, you're, you're uh, just about on the best bit, though. <laughs> One highlight was Dizzy Rascal belting out his hit bonkers. Yeah, Danny Boyle. <laughs> Danny Boyle managed to create uh, a vision of the UK which united all communities, even the people that like the song Bonkers. <laughs> and he gave us an ideal of a of an open, optimistic UK, refreshed with new communities. On that day, the whole nation was proud to be British. Danny Boyle has so much to answer for. So much to answer for. My God. I mean, like, and Slumdog Millionaire is not even the worst thing he's done. Um, (laughs) No, it was his fucking Olympics thing. Oh, my... Exactly. And I mean, they were around at a similar time as well, weren't they? Like, Slumdog was in what? Like, 2008 or nine. Yeah, uh, he was on some fucking trip at that point, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, that I, I read that book when I was like, uh, um, it wasn't called Slumdog Millionaire, it was called something else. Yeah. But I read it when I was like, maybe 12. And right. it's this one, the only line I remember was this guy who <laughs> was like having sex and he compared the girl's nipples to the Taj Mahal. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> You're joking. Was this was who was this written by? Uh, I think it was an India guy. Let me check. Um, oh, of course, I've forgotten what it's called. Good My brain keeps saying like IQ eighty four, but I'm pretty sure that's a different author. <laughs> I think that's like a Murakami <laughs> book. <laughs> Q and A, not IQ eighty four. Q and on. <laughs> Yes, QAnon. Um, but yeah, I mean, it says here, but the commission has also been keen to understand what happened when everyone went home after the games ended. <laughs> Did the UK return to its separate worlds where we live parallel lives? A world where your talent and potential contribution are limited by which postcode you live in, your race or your socioeconomic background? We recognise... As, as building- if your class doesn't affect how well you... How well you're prepared for the like the, the Olympics or uh, no, no, I'm not really going to go into this. All right, sorry, go on. <laughs> 
We recognize that building a confident, successful, multi-ethnic society is a huge and difficult endeavor. It is not an end in itself, but it is a way to strengthen the whole team. Um, and speaking of tortured sports metaphors, uh, let me see if I can find this again. Because this was actually pretty fucking incredible. Um, it's looking at specifically... Uh, diversity training at workplaces and, and why they don't work and let me be the first fucking person to say yeah i think diversity training at most work yeah they hit on like kernels of truth in certain certain bits here but then go to form the wrong conclusions from them. sure sure um i mean it's like the exact the wrong reasons you know why because um over here it says uh, similarly if, if diversity and inclusion training is only focused on white discrimination this risks alienating the very people whose behavior may need to change the commission wants to in wants inclusive workplaces where training which focuses narrowly on behavior around race can run counter to that far better is to focus on the biases nepotism in-group favoritism and motivated reasoning that people of all races are susceptible to. <laughs> the commission does, however, recognise the role that diversity and inclusion training has had in moving the dial and creating a space for conversations in, in organisations to redress actual perceived discrimination. It is important to build on this while focusing on interventions that produce concrete outcomes. And it comes to this incredible, an absolutely incredible conclusion. Uh-oh. So it says, so rather, I'll just read the whole context. The, the, the model for this aim is to aim at everyone. The model for this aim at everyone approach is spelled out in a paper. Diversity is important. Diversity related training is terrible by Musa Al Ghabi. Uh, diversity training, according to Algarbi, should not be focused on, on avoiding uh, and policing misunderstandings or conflict, but on helping people build relationships and collaborate despite inevitable disagreements and on leveraging divergent perspectives in order to advance collective goals. Can't really disagree with that. You yeah, know, fair on, enough. On, on its surface. The same may be said for the UK's entire race conversation. In that vein... This report takes an optimization rather than maximization approach to group inequality. That is, rather than judging success by how far society can maximize minority outcomes, even at the expense of discriminating against majorities, it moves to a balanced outlook that seeks to optimize outcomes across all groups and dimensions in society. This also means that an open climate of debate must be encouraged in which it is legitimate to question explanations based on discriminations as it is to make them. In a sporting match, we care about penalties, but we also care about referees who call too many fouls or players who claim that they have been fouled when they have not been. Is this a pro-VAR report? <laughs> Actually fucking incredible. Actually, I mean, this is a pro-ESL report. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Actually incredible. I mean... Oh my um, God! In a sporting match, we care about penalties, but we also care about referees who call too many fouls or players who claim that they've been fouled when they have not been. Actually, just, 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 I'd like, kind of fucking speechless, you know, when you read shit like this. And... Uh, this is an anti-Harry Kane report. <laughs> Anti-Neymar report. Harry Kane, is, <laughs> Harry Kane doesn't dive. Harry Kane, he's one of the, he's one of ours, you know? <laughs> he's not foreign. He, he doesn't dive. <laughs> um definitely not um he doesn't he doesn't do leg breaking tackles when he is he's just showing no passion. he doesn't try to break people's i'll stop <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, yeah, they're talking about, you know, new innovations like name blind CVs. I mean, like... (laughs) (laughs) So the thing, so I have a... 2021, that's like a new innovation. I have a very European name, uh, both first and last. And (laughs) then what happens when they're expecting a white person is they just look really confused when you turn up. <laughs> it doesn't really, because you go and you turn up for the interview and they're like, oh, that's a brown person. My God. Um, I mean, I was going to say bless them for trying, but they're not trying. Yeah, I mean, with my name, there's no fear whatsoever <laughs> that they'll think that I'm a white person. I think I'm, I think I'm all right on that front, to be quite honest. Um, uh, one of the other really interesting things in this what is behind disparity section as well um, when they're talking about the fact that hate crimes have risen um, recorded hate crimes have increased by 130% in the nine years leading up to 2020 Um, and their reason for this is because we have a broader definition of what constitutes race crime, race hate crimes, or whatever, and that we re- report them more often. It's not because they're actually happening, um, and uh, and of course, one of the main ways that we're able to report this, according to them, is because of social media. <laughs> so, oh yeah, they really love blaming social media for stuff. Of in course, those. of course. And um, look, does that mean to say that like social media hasn't had an impact on? conversations around race of course it has you know um has all of it been good no some of it hasn't you know like there's there's some pretty like bad tumblr-esque takes about race sometimes that you see floating around on on twitter as well there's no doubt about that uh but the bottom line is that like you know if it wasn't for social media you know like we wouldn't be able to see the widespread sort of um police brutality for example you know in life yeah uh, you know in, uh, um, they talk about this in the policing section they talk yeah. about you know police that it being not a good thing that you can record your yeah um interaction with the police but then because they're also it, because... really pro body cam so it depends on who's recording really um exactly you know who has control over the actual recording yeah. <laughs> and um and it's saying and obviously like one of the one of the key recommendations as a result of this uh, is uh, for, on you know, to, to crack down on online anonymity, which is another thing that politicians and blue ticks love to fucking do. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, as has been discussed by many people, it's a really... It's it's not just a stupid idea, but it's a very dangerous idea because yeah, I mean, a very that, good that's reason. me off the internet because obviously I can't talk about sex work with my full name out there. Literally, yeah, of course. And like, I mean... There's so many people who would not be able to do, who would not be able to have any voice if they weren't able yeah. to. Yeah, we talked about this yeah. last episode as well, you know, like whistleblowers, people fleeing abuse. Exactly. People talk about bad working circumstances. People, you know, talking about how the state is fucking them over. I think that's a massive one that I'd forgot last time. Yeah. But, you know, all of this stuff, you know, um, with the bedroom tax, with, um, you know, people like openly talking about benefits and stuff a lot of that would not have been able to come to the surface without people on the internet talking anonymously. I mean, in in India, people are being put in jail right now for saying anything against the government, for saying anything against the government's handling of COVID, for example, which is an absolute fucking horror show out there. And, you know, anyone who's like putting out videos or criticising the government, you know, they're, they're either being forced to delete those posts or 
worse, you know, having the police come and round them up. And, uh, you know, like, how the fuck is anonymity supposed to solve that, that, that problem? You know, especially when we are seeing an increased uh, tendency for surveillance and, um, you know, authoritarianism uh, from this government in the first place. One really funny thing that I saw in this as well was like, apparently 13% of white people say that they've experienced racism online. <laughs> oh, bless. Quite funny to me. They called it mayonnaise boy. <laughs> they got called gammon, didn't they? <laughs> 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 they were called mayo or gammon and they got really <laughs> really upset <laughs> and I, I can i can actually understand why it could be maybe like upsetting for someone to be called gammon or mayo or honky <laughs> or whitey or whatever <laughs> and they get called on the internet but also i i think there's an implicit understanding that this isn't really going to affect their lives on a wider wide level it's really not like come on <laughs> and like I, yeah, obviously it, it the chances are but... like i'm sorry and i'm sorry if this is like victim blaming and like not taking you know grievances seriously or anything but like chances are if someone's been called a gammon online it's <laughs> because they've gammoning. said some gammon shit you know <laughs> and like Fucking hell, man. Like, which is whenever, like, anyone makes the point, like, ah, oh, just get cool racist all the time these days. And I'm just like, well, maybe you do. Like, do you find do you find yourself being called racist a lot these days? I don't know. Maybe like. <laughs> Were you being racist in an Aldi? <laughs> like, fucking oh, no, hell, man. Like, may, maybe this could be like a moment of like self-reflection or something, you know, instead of saying, oh, like, like. A lot of this, this, um, uh, this, this argument as well about you know like expanding definitions of of hate crime and racism and microaggressions and shit like that. It's basically you know this oh it's woke gone mad you know it's political correctness gone mad, but just you know put in a slightly more intellectualized form. You well, know, do, do and- you know do you know who reports the most hate crimes overwhelmingly? Who? Police officers. <laughs> <laughs> anti-police hate <laughs> well no if a police officer say they're arresting someone and yeah. the police officer happens to be you know a woman or gay yeah. or brown yeah. or black or yeah. whatever yeah. you can because you 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 self identify not self-identify that's not the right, right word you identify <laughs> yourself which um whether you've, you've been the victim of a hate crime or not yeah police are just like yeah, this fucking guy. When <laughs> when I tased him, he swore at me. Therefore, he hate crimed me. I was a side cop at birth. Like, oh my god. Um, yeah, I mean this this report is basically just these days, <laughs> <laughs> but in the form of a report. <laughs> yeah. well, that's actually one thing I want to bring up because it comes up a lot and it's probably, so we, we both took basically two sections each. I took policing and, and health and you took schools and business. And I think, I can't remember what the other one two were. But yeah, like, yeah. So in the sections I read, um, so six paragraphs into the intro, they already start blaming ethnic minorities for not trusting state services and institutions. So the quote is, once we interrogated the data, we find that some evidence of biases, but often it was a perception that the wider society could not be trusted. And, you know, they're saying that these poor relations that 
uh, immigrants and people of colour and BME, I always use the wrong phrasing here, um, you know, the poor relations that they have, uh, the fault of the minorities are being reluctant to put their trust in these, you know, institutions that historically they've had very poor relationships with. And we know that, you know, they, they keep trying to say, you know, these, these things have changed. It's all good now. We know that's not true. We know yeah. that a police officer was just sacked because a black disabled girl flagged down the police car for help and they beat her with a baton dozens of times and tasered her. We know this is still happening. Wasn't she like, um, isn't she like 17 or something? Yeah, she was a te- definitely a teenager. My God. Yeah, just awful. And, you know, Fucking like, awful. black and brown kids are being brutalized by the police to this day. I see it from my window. <laughs> like, it's happening. And then the police section. Yeah, I, don't know, about- I don't know if it feels like it's ramped up or they're just generally, like, more public awareness and, and therefore, you know, uh, a, a bigger desire, you know, among the public to see it. But it feels, at least on social media, we're just like, almost every day or every other day, we're seeing some video of, like, some British police department just engaging in horrendous fucking brutality. It almost um, feels retaliatory, doesn't it? Because yeah, people are talking I mean, about it. Exactly. I mean, it, and, and, like, similarly to how, like, you know, last year when the... Um, BLM protests were happening after George Floyd's murder and like it felt like the police were going extra hard um it was almost yeah. like a statement you know like to to, yeah. to show people you know to put them in their place and you, know, you show... see these anonymous cop accounts on Twitter you know what they're yeah. really thinking like exactly they're laying it out there for all of us the number of fucking cops with like thin blue line badges that you see and like i don't know why but the british thin blue line badge is somehow even more noncy and weird yes. and like it's so ugly and just like more of a fucking sign of danger yeah i don't know especially because like because because it's co-opted you know because it's like it's so pathetic like <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're not, we're meant to have the nice cops but um <laughs> meant to being very very operative here but oh yeah, so you know they're talking, you know they're talking about you know it's just you know it's these it's these stupid idiot brown people's fault for not trusting the police when it's all here to see. There's a bit here about um, stop and search. So one in two white people arrested as a result of stop and search, but then one in five people, one in five black people are arrested as a result of stop and search. Therefore, you can extrapolate from that that four in five of the stop and searches are non-justified. I mean, to be honest, they're all, probably all non-justified. What? what? Like, if that's, we're talking that's in their the language. Most, that's the, what? <laughs> what oh, no, that, that the, statistic? <laughs> one in five black people are arrested yeah. from a stop and search. Yeah. Um, and then they go on to say, you know, one in 10 Asian people also, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, however, in review of 9,378 stop and search records from 2019... H-M-I-C-F-R-S, who I'm not bothered to Google right now, <laughs> estimate that there were reasonable grounds for stop and search on 81% of these cases. How? There were <laughs> 81% of them did not lead to arrests. Like, you know, or 80% did not lead to arrests. How were 81% of them reasonable? It doesn't track. And then, you know, like they really fucking love stop and search here. They really go to yeah. pages and pages of depth trying to defend it. And, you know, they want to make it more accountable by, uh, you know, giving police officers body cams, which has obviously worked fantastically in the US. And, you know, you can't, you can't make it more, you can't, you know, make people accountable to something that is 
inherently like fucked up and discriminatory. You can't legitimize it. Like it's they have such a vested interest in keeping Stop and Search alive. And I wonder if that's the um the guy on the commission who is like a cop for 30 years and chair of the youth justice board who's <laughs> this is his input. And also, if if a cop does turn off their body cam, you know, to for the uh, suggestions of the um, of the report, what you know, their punishment is to they're only accountable to their own supervising officers because you know cops don't look after each other; they look out for their own. Like it's so dumb. And there's you know the, the point I was making before about um, you know they're saying that the reason why ethnic minorities have bad relationships with the police is because the they're reluctant to believe the police have changed. But then they also, like, they counteract themselves. <laughs> they, um, they've taken data from the National Sikh Police Association who found that of the people who participated, almost half, 47%, had considered leaving their career due to their treatment. <laughs> the majority, 62%, of people reported suffering some form of racism at work and 59% felt they had been overlooked for opportunities for some or most of the time due to racism or conscious bias. And then it go, the report literally says that these police officers who are in the institution are reluctant to believe that the institutions have changed. These are people who are in it. The, The amount of blame that is going on is like insane. I mean... What's what's sort of most re- remarkable about this whole report, right? And I think that the term gaslighting is used like quite a lot, and in some cases probably not very correctly, um, you know, in in common parlance. But I don't think I've seen a clearer example of gaslighting than this <laughs> government report. Genuinely, I mean, like it's a complete and total denial of you know reality that people in this country experience on a day-to-day fucking basis you know and the the i mean like how much absurd does it need to be that there is a government stamped report which says that institutional racism doesn't exist it's actually because of the cultures of black and brown people yeah <laughs> i mean if that is not an example of institutional racism what is? <laughs> I think it, going back, like even with the NHS stuff, where they they're talking about you know there's this huge disparity in you know the way in the way different you know people different races are paid in the NHS. And they're like, oh, we need to change that, and it's like it's just not like a huge huge example of institutional racism. Exactly. Like you acknowledge it, but surely the fact that we have this huge state institution that is paying people massively differently on account of their race surely that is institutional racism i mean the report constantly reiterates that not all racial disparity can be uh described because of race and not all of it is bad <laughs> you know so <laughs> so like i mean even if it does exist i mean stop complaining you know because it's it's not really that big of a deal um yeah which is something that it keeps on seeming to kind of want to go to and um I mean, once again, uh, it's not exactly a new argument. Like, you've heard this shit from from people all the time. Uh, you know, it's just a, a basic understanding that, like, I mean, not all people are equal and, and not all people deserve 
equal treatment essentially yeah. you know and like um well fix your culture if you want to be treated right yeah and i mean when we talk about you know the colonial mindset not really being interrogated this is this is exactly it you know it's the idea that you know somehow there is still some sort of inherent superiority there and that some people simply like if they are worse off it must be because they deserve it somehow and it's their actual yeah. doing and um and kind of washing your own hands of any any uh responsibility and and don't get me wrong i think like a lot of the frameworks in which we talk about racism in terms of like individual responsibility and shit like white fragility and stuff i think is like oftentimes like really really counterproductive and it does not yeah. really help yeah. at all um because it is a problem of institutions and systems and uh you know much broader um intersections of of, of power dynamics but at the same time, you know, like there's just such a blatant denial once again, you know, not just of like current reality, but especially of history um, in order to kind of draw this conclusion and, 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 and have this, this, this understanding of the present, which is just completely divorced from the past, you know, it just yeah. kind of like sees things in this vacuum as if things just kind of happen. Like, you know, people live in different uh, neighborhoods, just, just that just happens, you know, like, People live uh, in, uh, you know, like certain minority groups have like lower socio socioeconomic status because that just happens, you know, like, yeah. um, you know, like uh, in certain um, uh, communities, there's a, a higher proportion of, uh, you know, single mothers that just happens, you know, like just it just it's because they are who they are, you know, there's no broader explanation for any of this. And it's this kind of like essentialized uh um you know view of of minorities you know so it's like on the one hand talking about the differences in you know in outcomes no but they, they were just working backwards they 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 came into this being like what we believe is this is everybody as uh, individuals faults we have these preconceived notions of people who don't do well and it's their fault it's their fault they're you know they're stuck in the mud and they're down or whatever so we're working backwards from this and that's what the report does like so many I, I the vast majority of the statistics in this piece go against their findings and they go against what they say yeah, and they exactly. they work backwards they say oh this doesn't agree with us we will just explain it away and there's like some serious stuff that they've just don't you know not paid proper care or attention to like in the health section this story you know the story pops up once a year or so and we pay attention to it for a bit and then it gets forgotten again but about the um, maternal mortality of black women yeah. being so much yeah. worse than um, than white women, I think it's like five times as much. Which I don't even put. I don't think they even put the stat. Oh, they do. They do put the stat down, but they try to contextualize it. But um, that gets two thirds of a page, and that's just really unbelievably grim. Like there's yeah. stuff there that will really hurt the findings and they just give it a little nod and don't really do anything about it and uh, like similarly with with regards to education for example you know like when you actually account for various other factors then like those differences in outcome become largely negligible yeah i mean i think there's there's a couple of things i think if we want to start wrapping up as well like i would personally say like this report like to me like there's two big takeaways from this report one being that 
especially given you know what you mentioned earlier about the fact that the majority of the people who wrote this all bar one being uh you know an ethnic minority themselves is that this is really like the logical endpoint of liberal identity politics yeah uh and and the tories are very very good at this and um there's a very high chance, for example, that the first POC prime minister in this country will be from the Conservative Party. Yeah. Um, and will know. probably be a woman. Yeah. Or maybe a woman. Yeah. And 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 they know that they can get away with this shit. You know, like Boris Johnson, despite being Boris Johnson and like leading like probably the most explicitly racist uh, ruling government in this country in quite a few decades, um, you know, can point to the fact that like his cabinet just in terms of pure numbers you know like has the all the diversity quota you know requirements you know um and therefore kind of just wash his hands of any responsibility and and say that it's all fine and and this is why you know like when when people talk about let's say for example like one of the recommendations in the in the piece about basically like more poc police officers essentially you know like, and it's just like <laughs> come on like that's like literally like the furthest fucking thing that you need um it's and like, it really like it, it's like with the Tory government as well it really obfuscates the issue it says you can't say and it's the same thing with the report you can't say this is a ra- this is racist a brown person did this yeah a black guy tased a black guy therefore it's not racist and it has nothing to do with the institution that he, he is the foot soldier of being racist yeah um, yeah and it's so so counterproductive the only people it helps are and that's actually a thing with this piece for what i'm going to say as well like i keep calling it a piece you know what i mean this report um it's you create if you if you want to halt progress if you want to keep things the same way they are instead of you know the there's there's a narrative for progress you you know you you think of the future you want to have and you talk about how you get there and you create a narrative yeah what this is doing is creating its own narrative and saying actually things are amazing things are great mm-hmm. here's why here's the story and it's all nonsense and it's all fucking fake and false but it's what they're doing this is what they're trying to do Hence, uh, you know, obsession with with brown success and black success. Yeah, and I mean, the authors of the book Empire's Endgame, they wrote a piece uh, about this report um, uh, on the Pluto Press website. And um, it's basically talking about how this piece, like, really sort of validates the central thesis of their book about how, you know, Britain is really sort of, as, as an empire. And this is, I would say, you know, like, my second main takeaway from, from this report as well. You know, it's like, um as as an empire how britain is in its last throes and it's you know like really this desperate to maintain that status quo and it's and it's you know uh, ad- adopting increasingly ridiculous ways to do that um whether the absurd fucking flag shagging and royal shagging you know that we've seen in the last few years uh, well especially in the last like year year and a half i would say to literally, you know, talking about how, I think, I can't remember who it was, but a Tory minister recently saying that, like, if any um, if any arts programme or any educational programme mentions the word decolonisation in it, it will not get any government funding anymore. You know, so, like, a very conscious rewriting of history, you know, like this idea of, you know, like the veneration of Churchill, for example, you know, and why he's kind of held as such a, such a sacred cow, essentially. Um, yeah. And, you know, like uh, the biggest example of this is, you know, in 
what they write as uh, the, the making of modern Britain, which is a teaching resource which they want to introduce. And it's saying that the making of modern Britain teaching resource is our response to negative calls for decolonizing the curriculum. Neither the banning of white authors or token expressions of black achievement will help broaden young minds. We have argued against bringing down statues. Like, literally. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> we all want children to reclaim their British heritage. We want to create a teaching resource that looks at the influence of the UK, particularly during the Empire period. We want to see how Britishness influenced the Commonwealth and local communities influenced, yeah? Uh, and how the Commonwealth and local communities influenced what we know as modern Britain. One great example would be a dictionary oh, or lexicon oh. of well-known British words which are Indian in origin. And oh. the kicker... There is a new story about the Caribbean experience, which speaks to the slave period, not only as being about profit and suffering, but how culturally African people transformed themselves into a remodeled African slash Britain. Like, but then they spend the whole fucking report shitting on Caribbean people. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing. I mean, it's 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 pure opportunism. It's pure cynicism. Like, they don't be- mean or believe a single fucking word of any of this. It's They, they literally just, just constantly just forgetting what they wrote 20 pages ago kind of thing going on. Yeah, I mean, this uh, report is not meant as a serious piece of academic work. By any means, you know, like any uh, remotely serious person will look at this and and laugh it off, you know, within a second. This report is very much intended as a way to launder essentially far-right racist talking points into the mainstream by giving it a government stamp of approval. Um, Yeah, and it's it's a good argument because they can, if you say this country is racist, someone can point out and go, no, look at this report. Exactly. And this person has not read the report, in all likelihood. <laughs> of course, of course. But they, um, yeah, at least they could say, well, no, no, they've investigated themselves and they're not racist. This is it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> They'll pat themselves on the back and say, you know, we're actually a, a model for anti-racism around the country. And and yeah, who would have fucking thunk it, you know, like after 2019, when Corbyn is positioned as the racist candidate against Boris Johnson, that this is how... The conversation so around racism in this country would fucking go. <laughs> like, who so could have broken. fucking predicted this, right? Who? <laughs> Please. <laughs> anyway. This is, this is made me so miserable, to be honest. Oh, my God. Like, I mean, this is the thing, you know, just report, just reading this, like, every paragraph, I'm just, like, scratching my head, just, like, wanting to laugh, but then at the same time wanting to cry because, like... I live in this fucking country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Genuinely pretty fucking uh, shocking so, stuff, honestly. Quite a miserable sign-off today, I think. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I think next week's one is going to be even more depressing. Depressing generally, obviously, but um, at least one good piece of news, and obviously this is very close to my heart, the fact that the, B- the BJP did not come anywhere close to winning uh, in the West Bengal state election, uh, which got announced, yeah, just, just a few days ago, I think on the 2nd. Yeah, no, that is that is very big news because it means that maybe the Modi machine can be stopped, like given the amount of money and resources they've actually poured into, into coming into power in West Bengal, which is a sort of stronghold of, traditionally has been a stronghold of um, at least anti-right-wing politics. Like the fact that they couldn't, 
come anywhere close. And yeah, possibly their handling of COVID has a lot to do with it. God fucking knows what the total death toll in India actually is right now because no one has a fucking clue. Uh, the government's not publishing any anything close to a, a report and the situation on the ground is really, really bad. And we very well may, no confirmation, but we very well may talk about this in the next episode as well. Yeah. So just a little sneak preview. Um, but yeah, I think this has been fun, but also quite cathartic, but also quite miserable. <laughs> yeah, I think I may need to depress. Yeah. <laughs> I think I might need to like hug the pillow and cry for a bit after, after, yeah. after I've signed off. Oh, I'm, having, I'm having margaritas after this. So. Ah, very nice. Very <laughs> that's nice. Plan. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that uh, sounds, sounds good. Um, <laughs> so I guess on, on that note, um, I've been Nikita. I'm at Jeremy Horbin. Yeah, I'm Arjan. Uh, at Arjanistan on Twitter and you can find us on all the social media um, at leftoverpod except on Instagram where it's left.over.pod and um, yeah and obviously our Patreon patreon.com forward slash leftoverpod massive thanks to everyone who supports us yeah thank you uh, if you are able to if you are able to help as well then uh, your support is massively appreciated this month we are going to have the first patreon early access content and um that'll be announced soon exactly what that'll be um so do keep an eye out for that huge shout out to sarah on production huge shout out to cardio for the music as always massive thanks to everyone for listening and we'll catch you guys next time cheers cheers Thank you.